something and then you go from there. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story from the Bible about who I want to be. And before I do that, because that sounds good, I want to tell you that this is not good. Okay? This is a mixed bag at best. But I just want to, defensively, I want to set the stage so that you have compassion on me telling something about myself that isn't so good. Okay? So I want to say that for decades now, I have had essentially this job out here and other places, but I've been in one of what is recognized, widely recognized as one of the most stressful jobs that you can be in, in all. They have one of the highest attrition rates, all kinds of things. There's just all, the stories are legendary about what happens with pastors. So I want to, I want to just put there for your compassion and empathy, decades of stress, okay? I want to add to that stress the fact that I've had two, my two older brothers both pass away in the last eight months. Okay, and that has been an enormous stress to me, and so I'm hoping to get your generosity and mercy at this moment. Uh, I also want to tell you that in addition to that, in the last seven months, I married two daughters. I, you know, did the ceremonies for two daughters, and though we got lots of help and God was amazing in that, that still did leave a financial overhang, which has been difficult, uh, and we did that knowingly, but nonetheless, you know, it just puts another level of stress in us, and that's in addition to having put those same two daughters through college, which left this cornice avalanche hanging over our head for the last X number of years, and I don't know how many it'll be before that's gone, but the bottom line is, is that's some stress, and then, you know, with my brother's passing, our family dynamic has changed completely, and my parents are, you know, there's some needs there, and so on, and so there's an enormous amount, not an enormous amount, but there's some real stressors coming from there. And, you know, do you get the picture? Let me, let me add one more to you. In just a couple of months, I'm going to be 60 years old, okay? And I know I don't look a day over 59, but, <laughs> but I just want to say, those of you who have gotten to 60 know that when testosterone drops and energy drops, you get tired. And the idea of carrying a whole bunch of stress every single day is just not nearly as attractive to you as when you were young and, you know, you had Atlas, that rock on your shoulders, you were like, this is cool. You know, when you get to be 60, that rock is starting to grind you into the dirt and you're kind of going, this is not so cool. So, so do I have your sympathy now? Yeah. Do I? Okay. Do I, I just want mercy. Yeah, I know. You're shaking your head no. Thank you so much. God, what a tough crowd. Okay. But so I'm going to read you the story now, okay? All right? This is, this is I want to be this person. Let me make that clear, okay? I'm not hiding from it. I'm just trying to get some sympathy in it. But here we go. A rich man had a fertile field that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Well, I wish I had that problem. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods, and I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I want to be that. Okay? I want to be that. Now, I need to say, I'm not alone. <laughs> Anybody who's under financial stress knows I'm not alone. The vast majority of you would like that too. In fact, the vast majority of people in here in financial stress are not, would actually like that. In fact, let's be clear about it. This is actually sort of ingrained into our, it's almost like an American right that you get to somehow retire. 
right? I mean, retirement, think about that for a second. You do realize what a modern invention that is, don't you? You do realize that that did not happen with people of old. You didn't retire. You worked until you died. Okay, that's what happened. In, the, in most of the world, that's what still happens. Okay, it's just a Western invention that you give your money, your money to the government and then they give you back some of it. Okay, you know, and you think they're doing you a favor, you know, okay? But the bottom line is, is come on, right? So retirement, I mean, this is, that, that's not a bad thing, right? Let's be clear about something. If you hadn't seen a really good friend, somebody you were really close for whatever reason, you just lost touch for a few years, and now they got together with you and you're, you go out to dinner with you and they tell you a story, and here's the story they tell you. You know what? I got involved in a tech company, and, and I had some good ideas, and, and we did something, and it made a bunch of money, and it got bought out, and I've got enough money now that I never have to do another thing in my life. What would you say in that situation? Would you say, tisk, tisk on you? Right? No, you would say, congratulations. Right? That's the American way. Praise God, you would say. Right? Those words would escape your mouth several times in hopes that it might happen to you. Right? <laughs> Praise God, unless you're just really a bad person, you know, that's so jealous you can't handle somebody else's success. But I mean, most of us would be very happy for somebody that got to not have to be under that four-letter word work, right? And that's not saying that you have to stop working. I'm just saying you don't have to work, right? I mean, this is like good, and let's be clear, it's not bad at all. Remember what the garden was? The garden was a place that God created and put us in where you didn't do any work. If you were hungry, you reached out your hand and you picked it and you ate it. That was it. You didn't do it. There were no weeds. You didn't do anything. You just got heaven. I promise you, you will not have a job in heaven. You don't have a 401k hoping for a better day. Okay? It doesn't happen. What happens instead, and to the contrary, is God just wants to be with you. This is, this is not an evil thing to think of work as a four-letter word. Because, do remember, the reason why work comes about is because Adam and Eve sin. And he says, now by the sweat of your brow will the earth that was made to be abundant, but you've perverted and corrupted it, and now it will not provide for you except that you put your sweat equity in. You see that? And I'm not saying you should, I'm not saying the guys in the garden never had to do some tending and stuff, but I'm telling you, it wasn't work as a four-letter word. It wasn't this thing that we all, even if you like your work, when you get to my age and you have the kind of stress that you do, even if you love your work, and believe me, I feel like I'm the luckiest person on the face of the earth. I really do. I'm quite confident I'm not, actually. But it doesn't change how I feel about it. Because I feel so fortunate that I get to do what I get to do, okay? But even then, I always say, it's so much fun to go skiing. But it's really good to get the boots on off when you're done, <laughs> right? So there's this thing that you do look forward to that's a different pace and a different rhythm and a different thing altogether, and you hope that you can get there. And a lot of people... In this last generation, a lot of people did. In the next generation, that's very much up for grabs. Okay, this whole retirement thing is really on the edge, right? As to whether or not we can actually afford this or not. So, all right? So maybe I'm not quite as bad a person 
as I was thinking I was, because I'm reading this story to you that Jesus actually uses in a negative way. And, and let me just show you the, the negative way that he uses it, because what he does is he says, someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? I'm going to do something right now, and I know this is just the introduction. It's a long intro. I'm warning you now. But I, I want to do something with you right now. I'm going to not preach this, this entire section the way that it's almost always preached. Been preached by me like it too. Because here's the way so many things in the Bible are preached. Here's something that happened. Here's something that Jesus said, and here's what you have to do about it. Here's what you're supposed to do and not do. This is the behaviors that you're supposed to enter into in order to be right here. But can I say something to you about that kind of preaching? That's nonsense and it's garbage and it always misses the deeper point. It always brings you into an, uh, a religious kind of uh, behavior modification that is its own straitjacket and has nothing to do with what's really being said. So I'm just telling you there's a way to read this scripture that I'm just not going to do today, which is you know, talking about what you should do and not do and how you should feel about it and how you should, all this kind of stuff. I wanna, I'm gonna paraphrase this entire story for you and I'm gonna show you what's below it, like Jesus did with the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said this kind of thing, here's what I'm telling you. And I wanna tell you the depths of where this story actually goes. Can I, we just cut to the chase and get to that right here in the intro? Someone said to him, teacher, tell my brother that I didn't inherit with me. I'm going to paraphrase now. Friend, he said to you, who are you asking this question of? Are you aware who you're asking the question of? Who made me the arbiter between you two? Why do you think I have something to say about your situation? Do you recognize me as somebody who might have some help on this situation? Is that why you're asking me? Because I'm asking you to stop for a second and to consider who you're really asking. It's not untrue that I have something helpful to say to you. But you're thinking it has to do with this inheritance thing. I'm telling you, consider who you're asking the question of. He told him, watch out and be on guard against all greed. I just told you that story that we told is not greedy in itself. That story in itself, by itself, is not a bad thing. It's something God desires to do to bless you. He's not the one that has a problem with us being wealthy. We are. So the point is, he's going, but he, see where he goes? Greed. One's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells the parables. One's life is not in the abundance. Here's what the guy's doing. One of two things. Maybe he has a problem and he'd like the money to get out of his financial problem, the inheritance. Or maybe he's just, he just wants to be comfortable like his brother. Either way, what he's saying is, that money's going to fix my problem. See? Make him do it because I know the answer to what I need, and you can help me get what I want. You can help me get what I think I need. You can help me get what I think is my hope. Give me, get him to give me this, and then I'll be okay. And Jesus is saying to anybody who would say that, and by the way, that's every single person in this room at some point in your life. At some point in your life, you have become so narrowly focused on what would be your solution that you go to the God who created the whole of the universe and you're begging him for this scrap. We are dogs fighting over scraps when the creator of everything stands right there. <laughs> Do you see it? And that's why he's saying to him, 
Who are you asking? Think about who you're asking for a scrap from. <laughs> Consider who I am. Do you see it? And he goes on to say it this way. God said to him, you fool. That's the guy in the parable. You fool. He didn't say it to that guy. But he was kind of saying it to that guy. And he is kind of saying it to us. Let's be clear. You fool. This very night your life is going to be demanded of you. Let me paraphrase that again. Are you thinking in light of eternity? Or are you thinking in light of how your life is working out and the little details of it and the scraps you're fighting over? See, don't you understand? You can't take that stuff with you. <laughs> it's going to be somebody else's. You don't get to keep it. It doesn't go with you into heaven. You know what does go with you into heaven? The times when you were rich with God. That's how it is with one who stores up a treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. When we get to fighting over the scraps, we get so tight that we completely lose the glory of the heavens. The glory that awaits. In a moment, like the older son of the twins in Jacob's life, we trade the birthright for some soup. See it? I won't consider the thing that's bigger and more important to be bigger and more important. I just know what I need right now, and I'm going to go after that. You see it? Now, right there, right there, I hope that you've already got this thought of, oh, crap, I do that. <laughs> right? I do that. I do, I do get consumed in these things that I think I need and that I do need. There's some of it, you know, that it is a need. But I get consumed with it in a way that that answer to that need becomes my hope, not the one who answers it. Not the thing that he can do that's way beyond anything I could think of. Do, do understand something. Jesus talked about money more than any other thing by far. Almost, almost add up the next things together and it's more than that. Did he care about money? You can't find one place in any way, shape, or form that Jesus gave any indication that he gave a rip about money at all. When he wanted to pay taxes, he went fishing and took the coin out of the mouth. There's no indication anywhere whatsoever, ever, 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 ever that Jesus did anything to provide for himself. I'm not saying he didn't work. He was a carpenter. He made things. I'm, you know, but I'm saying his orientation was never that my job is what provides for me. right? He didn't care about money at all. So why did he talk about it more than anything else? Because he knows we do. <laughs> he knows what a sticky issue this is. In fact, let me just say it clearly. Here's what we are as Christians. Sorry, but let's get this out and let's get it real, right? When we come in here, we put on a certain shade of glasses, and when we hear stories in the Bible, we, we, we hear them and experience them through this filter, right? So that we can think that we're really living up to it. 
Because we can have these noble ideas about how it is we're doing relative to God because of the filter that we put on. And then we can walk out of church and put on the glasses that we use for the world and we can act and believe and trust completely differently than we do when we're inside these walls. Is this true or not? Is this you or not? I gotta tell you, that's what a hypocrite is. And we saw last week how Jesus feels about that. What he's trying to do is get rid of any filters whatsoever. He's trying to say, when you're here, this is the most important time to get real. This is the most important time to drive it home. This is the time to really deal with how hard this actually is. So that when you go out there, you can actually live it. And by the way, what we saw last week is, is when you actually live it, it is unbelievably compelling to a world that doesn't trust and is fighting for scraps. And when they see somebody who's got something bigger in life in them because of something else, they say, I want that that you got, because I don't got that. I don't have a piece that passes understanding. I got understanding that's freaking me out. <laughs> right? Right? So let's get real today. What we're going to try and do is, is we're going to try and bring this home to you in a way that when you leave here today, you're going to trust to the degree that the disciples did to where they could give it away. Because remember what we've been saying about this the whole time throughout Luke. What we're doing is, is we're just taking the same journey that Jesus took his disciples through, and he is taking us through that journey. And we've seen over and over and over again where God has confirmed that he is indeed taking us through that journey. So this is the step that he wants us at right now. And he wants us to get a victory over something that is caging and binding us. He wants to set us free. He wants us to know something for real in our hearts so that the whole of our behaviors can come out of that and not out of this other miserly thing. Sound good? Who's our prayer? Oh, Roger Maddox. What an absolutely perfect person to have pray this. Roger, uh, I just don't know. Uh, he doesn't want me to say this. Nobody ever wants. But... <laughs> okay, you said it. Now, I've asked him to preach here pretty quick, and he really doesn't want to do it. So if you want to preach, clap, would you? Okay. That doesn't mean you have to, Roger, if he doesn't do it. Okay, he hasn't said yes yet. So we're not putting pressure on him, but I just want to tell you. This is not pressure. This is not pressure. Well, I didn't pick who was praying. You did. Me, okay. DJ did. So anyway, that's enough. Okay, Roger, go ahead and pray for the sermon. All right, I haven't prayed yet. <laughs> trouble. Lord, thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, that you speak to our hearts, Lord, and you speak to uh, each situation that we are living at the moment, God. I just am hearing what Kurt is sharing and thinking of things in my own life where this is so applicable, and I just ask, God, that you would speak to my heart and speak to each, uh, each person here, Lord, uh, what it is that you want to say. Thank you for Kurt. Thank you for uh, what you poured into him this week. We ask, God, that your words would pour out and that we would have ears to hear uh, as you speak to us, Lord. Uh, Father, I just pray for the, uh, the uh, Advent Anglican Church where uh, Aaron Burt preaches, God, Amen. and we just ask, God, that you would bless their congregation, that they would know you and know you abundantly, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Phenomenal prayer for a church. Love that. Love him. That's awesome. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little story. Uh, you've heard some of this, but I'm telling it for a particular reason and in a particular way that I don't think you've heard exactly this, but if I'm repeating myself to some who have been here for a long time, I apologize. My brother Dave Brunk was a maniac. I mean that. I'm not kidding. Anybody knew him knows that's true. What's a maniac? Somebody who does something that people don't do. When he was young, he went on a trek. This was a weeks-long trek into a mountain to do a first ascent on a range. Jan, what was the name of the mountain? Do you remember? It was in the Bugaboos in Canada, but it was a, it was a peak that had never been you know, ascended before. And what they had to do was drop food stores in about every, I think it was three or four days. And, and if they made it to the next food store, then they would live. If they didn't make it, they wouldn't live, and it was weeks long. So you, so, and there really was, there was a phone call on the sat phone where they got caught in a storm and they weren't going to make it to their next food store. And Dave had to call Jim and say, it looks like we're going to die. And I needed to wait a couple of days to confirm it. But, you know, if we don't make it, I need you to tell the folks. I need you to tell them these things. That's a maniac. <laughs> okay. I don't know anybody else in here that's had that experience. There probably are a few. Eric Lee's probably one of them. But, but the bottom line is, okay, that's not what normal people do. Well, here's another thing that normal people don't do. Dave Brunk is sitting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Now, let me make it clear. Jackson Hole is not a place you ever move from. Nobody can afford to move to it, but if you can, when you do, you don't leave, okay? Jackson Hole is an end destination, okay? And you don't move from Jackson Hole, and you certainly don't move from Jackson Hole to where Dave and Jan moved their four little kids. And that is a place, they were sitting in, in Jackson, and they saw the Iron Curtain was falling, and they saw the Berlin Wall fall. And when Dave saw the Berlin Wall fall, people were crying out for freedom, and he said, God will be there. And Dave moved his family from beautiful, comfortable, wonderful, where he had a very profitable ministry, by the way, was doing jail ministry, was doing uh, endangered kids. Was, he was ministering tons, but he moved from there to, I don't even know if I can say I affectionately call, but the drab, dreary hellhole that is Belarus. Now, you don't like that? Trust me, you got to go there, and then you agree with me. The, Belarus is right here. I, you don't like that. I did something bad there. Sorry, I, whatever I did. But here it is. Belarus is a little country right there. See it? It's on the other side of Poland. See Germany, Europe's over here. But there's Belarus right there, and Belarus was part of the former Soviet Union, <clears throat> and so that was all falling too. And so they moved their family to Minsk, and what Minsk is is that. That is about the most perfect picture of what the most of Minsk is that you could get. It's, it's, it's dreary. It's always dreary. There's, there's just tons. It does, can grow some wheat and so on, lots of wheat, but, but it's flat, and it's muddy, and when it's not muddy, it's frozen, okay? And, and it's where, you know when you see those horrible Russian movies and the war movies, and they go to these flat places and there's nothing but snow and people are starving to death and they're fighting and everything else? Well, that's Belarus, okay? This is where they go to fight. When Europe and Russia get into a fight, which they tend to do quite often, they end up fighting in Belarus. 
85% of their population, their male population has been wiped out by war, okay? So this is a tough place, okay? Now, I just, I just want you to show you, this is, this is a typical place where people live. They don't have houses, you know, in little backyards and stuff like that. In a footprint the size of, of roughly Bellevue and Redmond, they have as many people as in Seattle Sound, the whole region. So there's, uh, there are probably a couple million people now, but they're 1.3, 1.4, something like that when they move there. So millions of people in buildings like that. Can you see the grass right there? That's what the grass looks like. And trust me, the grass has so much dog poop in it, you don't want to walk in it. The only reason why there is grass here, nobody's watering it and cutting it and mowing it. The dogs go to the bathroom there and it's dirt, so it turns into grass, okay? Because then it rains, okay? Now, I know I'm painting a lovely picture, but you'll see what's gonna happen here. But you, you can see what, the, and the buildings look like that. They're not nice, they're Soviet, okay? They're just big cement yuck, okay? This is, this is a view from their apartment, which by the way, when they moved there, they thought, you know, we really wanna be in this particular apartment because it has such a great view. Well, what they found out was, is being in a high floor in Russia is bad because the elevator never works, okay? And when it does work, it smells of urine. Now, I'm being truthful here, okay? And I'll get to this, Jan, so don't worry. But she's sitting back there going, this is, she knows I'm telling the truth, okay? There's another truth too, but all right. But this is the view out there, and you can see the playground there, which is just dirt. You know what I mean? And that's the supermarket back there, the one that you stand in line for, for, you know, like two, three, four hours, and then when you get there, they don't have anything that you want. Okay, so that's Minsk, and even the government buildings, which are the nicest buildings, are drab, dreary, soulless monoliths. You know what I mean? They're these big, ugh, and they're supposed to inspire, you know, people to hire things, and all they do is make you feel like a little babushka. They just are oppressive, okay? Uh, just everything about it. It's just a really, it's a tough place. It just is. I'm sorry, it just is. But the bottom line is, is that Dave and Jan moved there with their four little kids, and maniac that he was and is, they found something to love. And that was the people. And this is, this is about, what would you say, Jan, is this maybe three or four years in is all? Yeah, 95, okay. So this is three or four years in, and you can see the hundreds of students, and you can see Dave and Jan, you see them all the way over at this side. Just one, two, three. You see Jan right there smiling. And then Dave right behind on the very left-hand side towards the very front. Okay, that's Dave and Jan. And this is the school that they started when they went there. And uh, now I want to make something clear. If you'd have known Dave before he ever went there, you would have you never said that Dave was a worship. Dave loved worship. Oh, just like everybody did. You guys remember those songs, you know, I love you, Lord, and some of which we sang this morning. You know, I mean, those songs, everybody loved the worship, right? And Dave would sit there with his hands raised and his eyes crying and, you know, just like everybody else. So, but he wasn't a, he never led a worship, he never ever led a worship, ever. Didn't play an instrument, I guess he played the trumpet, but, you know, you don't lead worship with a trumpet, okay? <laughs> Actually, I think God did, so hey. But, but you get the point. Dave was, it wasn't even about worship, but here's what Dave did. He went there. And what happened there was, is that these Philharmonic students, these people that had been trained since they were in junior high to be world-class musician level, and a bunch of these musicians showed up. And so Dave said, well, I guess let's do worship then. 
So they started doing worship. Well, the problem with the worship that they were doing was is that all of the worship that was in all of Minsk and the whole of the Soviet Union at that point in time was drab and dreary, just like the buildings, just like the country, just like the weather. Okay, it was, you, you could not sing about joy. You could not sing about love. You could not sing even about the love of God, really. It was more, life was, was brutal and hard and hopefully short. And then heaven was great. But you didn't even sing about heaven because that would just make now be that much harder. So you, you, everything was in a minor key, a dirge. Kind of, you know, just, ugh. Right? And all of a sudden, Dave is singing, I, Lord. And all of a sudden, these kids that are filming, they don't know the Lord. But they're, God led them to the school, and all of a sudden, they get saved. And now they're singing, I love you, Lord. And everybody's crying. Because the presence of God is there, and you can love him, even in the middle of that. And this stuff just starts to spread like wildfire. Until what happens is, is, bunch of people start wanting to get in on what they're doing, so they have a seminar, and they have a few thousand people. They have another seminar, and they have tens of thousands. And then they, they have a seminar, 20,000 people show up, and they have to restrict any church to three people or, or less because there's so many churches that want to come. They can't possibly fit them all in the stadium they've rented in St. Petersburg. And so now all of a sudden there's 20,000 churches, which is what, you know, 8,000 churches or something like that, or 7,000 churches being represented in this place. And then what happens is that music, this new kind of worship, this way of saying I love you and all this kind of stuff, it starts to spread to the rest of the country. And let me just sidebar you real quick now. Before it really started to take off in the rest of the company, country, I do want you to know something. The Pentecostal Union, we're not talking about the fundamentalists. We're not talking about the people that don't understand the moving of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the Pentecostal Union. The Pentecostal Union pastors, almost a man, because they don't have any women, pastors in there, but almost to a person, come to the bishop and tell him, this thing that Dave Brunk has brought is of the devil. Dave Brunk is of the devil, and you must throw him out of the country. Now, God gave that the fortitude to stand up against his pastors and say, no, something is happening here, and it's got life in it, and we're going to see where it goes. And where it went was to these seminars, these symposiums that they have, which, by the way, first one is going to happen again in a few months due to some stuff that God has now rekindled. But they're going to, Gateway Church, a huge church down in Dallas, is going to be doing a symposium, four churches doing this. So, God, nothing's ever wasted with God. But the bottom line is, is they have 20,000 people showing up for these symposiums, and then here's what they do. They start getting, they had it, they built a studio in Minsk to do a recording, because now they're spending recordings out all over the whole Russian-speaking world. And then what happens is, see, now that they've got all of Russia coming, you see Minsk way over here? You realize this is 11 time zones. America is three, unless you count Hawaii. Okay, we're three time zones. Three times more than America. America flew a little tiny section of that. Eleven time zones, and literally at the furthest reaches, people were coming to these worship symposiums. And then they would go back, and Dave's whole point was, don't sing American songs. Sing your own songs. God's with you. Have a relationship with him, and from that relationship, write songs about loving and being with him in rivers of living water. Write those songs. And so they take a mobile studio, and they start going into places that you don't get to go to. 
We're talking the Ural. We're talking into, into forests and into little, little villages all over the place where, you know, electricity is kind of cool, okay? And these, these people have got a hold of what this worship is, and they've got a mobile studio, and they're going in and recording this indigenous worship that has to do with love, and this spreads throughout the entire 11 times of the Soviet Union until, and this is absolutely true, you, I've talked with many people about it that are from there, and they say, absolutely. It wasn't that God changed the nature of worship in the whole of the Soviet Union. He changed the nature of people's relationship with God. Through this thing of worship, he changed how people worshiped God, how people interacted with him. He changed Christianity in the, he and Jan changed Christianity in the whole of the Soviet Union and the Soviet-speaking world, which is a lot of people. To this day, there's still a program that goes out that goes to 50 million people. And back when they could refresh content all the time, it was the first or second most television program in the country all the time. And all it was was worship and testimonies. Worship and testimonies. Now, it's still going, and we're hoping to, right? But this is not about that. What this is about is I want to tell you. I've told you that story. Some of you have heard some of that. Here's the part I'm not sure if you have heard. I can promise you that when Dave and Jan went over there in the very beginning, not knowing what God was going to do and just taking their family and going over to see what God would do, I can promise you what they did not have in their heads was is that we're going to end up spending virtually all of our money here to the point that it hurt. I can promise you that they did not think that. Like so many people who have resources, he didn't raise up a support mechanism of people to do so. And to this day, I still fault him for that. And I still think he denied people blessings that they would have gotten from supporting them in the many things that they did. But Dave had the resources. And in the, in the beginning, you see, what happened was he fell in love. And when you fall in love, what won't you do? If, if, if your spouse comes to you and they are ill, are you going to say, well, you know, you, you're probably going to die, so let's save some of that money that we would have spent on trying to maybe get you healed because, after all, I need to live. Is that what you do? You're in love. You wouldn't do anything. You, what you do is you say, if I've got a dime, it's yours. Here. Right? And that's what Dave did. And it started out as thousands, then it became tens of thousands, then it became hundreds of thousands, then it became millions. And literally between supporting themselves so they could work on this thing 60 plus hours every, you know, Dave, 80 hours. Uh, there was a time when he was working so hard we all felt he was going to die because he was working so hard. And the bottom line was is he all of his money and all of his heart, mind, soul, he was, everything was being poured into there. Now, you can look at that as a normal person. And you can say, that's stupid. You know, you put your family in financial. You, you didn't live in the, the way that you could have lived because of what you did. You didn't, right? That was dumb of you to do. Let me make something clear because some people are, love Jan so much and I'm not going to go into any detail on it, but let me make it clear. The money that they were putting in there, they, they had assets and they did sell assets to support themselves and put it in the ministry. But bottom line was most of the money was coming from a fairly large income stream that was inherited. And that income stream still exists today. It's much shrank. But, he, but uh, you know, just so that you don't worry about Jan, Jan has that and she's okay. 
Okay, she can live on it, and it isn't providing lavishly by any means, but it's allowing her to still have choices. And so Dave and God, more accurately, has taken care of those. In fact, let me tell you, and this is going to embarrass him, but there's a member of the kids that God has blessed magnificently financially, and that kid has stepped up and filled news of being what a dad would do in these memorial services and so on, of buying thousands of dollars of airline tickets to get people to weddings and to memorials and to all of these things. And one that God has provided for the family through one of the sons who has been just uh, exemplary in his gracious and generosity to provide for the family. So God has provided for the family. But you can still look at what Dave did and you could look at it through the natural eyes of somebody who's trying to be careful and budgeted and I'm all for budgets. I will live on one myself. But if you, look, but if you let that constrain you, the whole point about financial peace is not to constrain you, it's to free you. Because there's all kinds of stuff that you're doing that's constraining you. So get rid of that stuff and then you can do whatever God wants you to do. And the point is, is that's precisely what Dave Bunk did with his funds. And I just, this way, it's one thing for a rich person to give a lot of money. You know what rich people rarely do? Give so much money that it actually hurts. They can give a lot of money, and it still doesn't hurt them. Jesus talks about it this way. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts into a collection box. A poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow's given more than all the rest. They've given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, and I, I didn't use that translation, but the, the better translation is, has given of her provision. Has given money away that causes her not to be able to eat as well. That's what it means. See that? Given everything she has. See that? Rich people don't do that. I'm not saying none have ever done it before, because I'm telling you about one that did it. And I just want to make it clear why he did it. He fell in love. <laughs> you want to know how to be generous? Try and be generous just because you want to be generous. It doesn't work so well. You're generous right up until it starts to hurt, and then you just, it seems like you ought to take care of yourself, too. But when you fall in love, Dave stands before the Lord right now, and the words that he hears from God are not, gee, Dave, that was kind of responsible of you. What Dave hears right now is, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I've set you over much. And I just think about that. That's, a, that's for this world comment, but think about what Dave has right now. Dave gets to go into eternity knowing that he didn't withhold anything from God. <laughs> right? Enter into the joy of your master. I want to show you something. This love principle, this thing that's been so important, you've been hearing it in serenities and in mics and in mind, this love thing I want to show you something. The greatest commandment is what? Right here. Teacher, what's the greatest in the, in the law? The greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. It is the greatest and most important commandment. 
But, uh, but I'm going to paraphrase the second part to show you something about it. The second one isn't another one. The second one is the expression of the first one. The second one is like unto it. The second one arises out of it. The second, the, the second one, the first one gives birth to the second one. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you will fall in love. <laughs> Somewhere, somebody. You will fall in love. <coughs> and I'm not talking about spouse love. I'm talking about ministry love. I'm talking about the people that God made you since before the foundations of the world to serve. Pour out everything for. He gave you much in the way of resources, money, but talent, time, energy, everything. Abilities, giftings. And what he's done is he's poured this into you. And what he wants you to do is go find who you love. And then love them. And when you do, just do what lovers do. <laughs> right? Which is to give everything to that other person. <coughs> Ministry doesn't come with a prenup. Right? Love neighbors yourself. Pour it out. <coughs> Why don't we? Well, Jesus said it. There's, you're greedy. We're greedy. We have insatiable appetites. Some of us, it's more obvious. But, and not all of us have an insatiable appetite, thank God. Some people are just born with a natural aptitude to not be as greedy and not be as avarice as other people. And let me just say, if you are that kind of person, don't think that you're better than anybody else. Just thank God that he gave you that, okay? I'm not saying you don't have to do some resistance to in order to be there, and God, thank God for that. But what I'm telling you is, is don't thank God for what you just got naturally, I mean, excuse me, thank God for what you got naturally, but don't judge others got naturally, right? And so the bottom line is we have this insatiable appetite, but here's, here's the thing we've all learned about insatiable appetites, if you've lived any length of time at all. Here's what you've learned. There's no end to it. Insatiable means can't be quenched. And so you can have a ton and still feel like you want more. There's never an end to it. And so, too, the second thing that is the primary two reasons why people have a greeting, hoarding, sort of miserly, scroogeous type mentality, and that's fear. And there's lots of people that are driven towards accumulation beaker because of something that happened to them or the way they were brought up or whatever, and they fear, and they're trying to protect themselves all the time. And here's the key to that one. It doesn't matter how much you have. If you don't feel like you're protected, you can have a ton and not feel safe. So here's the thing with perversions, all perversions, sexual and this one right here. There's no end to them. They're an ever-growing thing. There are a virus inside of you which is going along and it is destroying you on the inside. It's killing you. And this is what's happening. This is what we do. We have an appetite or we have fear and it causes us to be grabby. It causes us to want to protect ourselves or to provide for ourselves. Or to, see what I mean? And we have every justification for why I could do this, but I don't have to because I have to do this. We can play that little game. So how do we get past that? 
hey, praise God, we've got this story of Jesus raising up disciples. And, and the story is being told by a guy who wasn't a disciple, but who was talking to a disciple, and he's going through it too. He's being discipled by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's quickening Luke what to write down. Because that's how he disciples, because he wants people 2,000 years later to be reading the book and realizing how God disciples, and not just realizing how he disciples, but entering into the process of the discipleship that Jesus is doing to the disciples, as it's been faithfully recorded by the Holy Spirit through Luke. Did, I, did everybody get what I'm saying here? What I'm saying here is, I need you to right now forget about this passage I'm about to read you as being one of these Sermon on the Mount type things that's sort of broad and general and goes out like this. I need you to understand that what Jesus did was somebody from the crowd asked him, he responded. But then he did something else. He turned to his disciples. See, we always miss the little transitions, and the little transitions got a lot in them. He was speaking like this. But now he turns to his disciples and he says this. <coughs> Paraphrasing. That was the paraphrase. What he does is he does this to them. He's saying to them, I know that this is a problem for you. I know you want to be the rich guy and retire. I know you want that. So I'm going to tell you something now, going to try and get into your soul, into your spirit, into your heart, in a way that it transforms you so that you don't live that way anymore. You don't live like a dog going after a scrap. You live like a child of the king. I want to say something to you and you and you and you and you right now. The very same thing he said to the disciples, who, by the way, bore the fruit of giving everything to Jesus and going out into the entire world and spreading the good news. The good news of what? Giving up everything? The giving up everything was a who cares? They spread the good news of a God who can be trusted. Of a God who's doing miraculous and marvelous things. And that our scrap mentality is stealing from us the understanding of. You see it? We don't live the way that we want to live because we're too busy with this. So, I'm going to do something. I'm going to read a passage, and I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to let Jesus talk to you. It's going to sound like my voice, but please, let it be the Holy Spirit, wings of eagles, putting a river of living water in your heart. I want you to listen to what Jesus said to these guys to get them to think differently. I want you to listen to what Jesus is saying to us right now so that we will live differently. Got your eyes closed? Ready? I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, life is more than food. Your body more than clothing. Look at ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, but God feeds them. You're far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries Answer the question when you hear this. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? No, they actually take away from it, don't they? 
And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of believers all over the world, but your Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and He will give you everything you need. Much more than just money. Don't be afraid, little flock. It gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to those in need. This stores up treasure for you in heaven. The persons of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Just understand, wherever your treasure is, that's where the desires of your heart are going to be. I want to tell you, you can open your eyes if you want. You don't have to. There's a lot of people in the history of the world that have given everything to God. You know what we don't have very much of? Stories from people that did the work out. I'm not saying it's never happened, but I don't know of any. On a personal level or a biographical level. You know what we do have lots of? Tons of people that gave everything to God and then told the most incredible stories about what God did. Let's be clear. It doesn't always mean it's all going to be roses and happy ever after. I've told my story way more times than I would ever care to tell it, ever. But let me just make something really clear to you. When I was younger, I went to the Lord realizing that he was real and realizing what I'd been given, and saying, Lord, everything I have is yours. And here's the great story I can tell you. Where it led to was me losing absolutely everything. That wasn't his fault, it was mine. Not only did I lose everything, but the people, most people don't know this, but for 20 years, after I lost everything, I had a federal tax lien against me for $140,000. If you have a federal tax lien, you know what that means? You can't get a credit card. You can't, buy, you can't buy a house. You can't get any kind of credit ever in any way. You can't do anything that normal people do. You can't go into a store and apply for a, you know, buy something on time. You can't do anything. If you have a federal lien, you're in danger of garnishment of your wages to like 80% at every moment of your life, and you live with this Damocles sword over your neck at every single minute. And I had a Damocles sword over my head for 20 years, and here's the key now. Listen to this. It happened because I gave an IRS agent $250,000 against a $140,000 debt, and that IRS agent, I didn't know this until 20 years later, but that IRS agent got a commission on money that she collected from me 
So she took the entire money, and rather than giving me a refund of $110,000, which at that point in time we were incredibly poor, I mean, as poor as most of the people in this place have ever been, And not only did she not give me that money back, but she took it all and she gave herself, a, I guess she made about $80,000 on that, and then lied about it, and slapped me with a federal tax lien. <laughs> and 20 years later, a congressional aide called me and said, we hear you're one of the people that got screwed by the we gave tax collectors. And I said, I am. They said, we've got your letters, and we've got letters from attorneys and accountants and everything about what you did. And, and they said, we can't give your money back, but what can we do? Because it's, it's clear to us what happened and, you know, that you got screwed. And I said, well, take the lien off. And they said, done. Now, I gave God everything. And I lived for 20 years. <laughs> I lived so poor. I just got to tell the story really quick. This is just one story. I need to tell it because I need you to understand. When I said I gave God everything, I need you to understand what that means. Because I don't want you to count, not count the cost of the tower. I want you to know what the tower cost. Tower cost. We were so poor when we were in graduate school that we couldn't buy clothes. So the clothes we had were quite old and dingy and so on. But everybody was poor at grad school. So that wasn't such a big problem there. But I was going to Chicago, and I was going to near North Chicago to visit Julie's brother. And near North Chicago at that point in time was the center of the cool universe. Uh, there was literally movies made about it, about last night and so on. Television shows, movies, the Rat Pack came out of there, everything else. And near North was a really cool place, and I knew what cool was. I, I was a guy who years before that had actually been in the newspaper for cool clothes I owned. And they literally said, what are you wearing? And wrote that down in the papers if that was important to anybody. It wasn't to me. But that's who I was, and now I'm going up there, and I'm going, I don't have clothes. I have clothes that make me so embarrassed that I don't know if I can handle it. And I just happened to have an old pair of tennis clothes. I, I hadn't played tennis in years and years, and I was a little fatter then, so they didn't fit quite right. But, but they were, at least it was nice clothing. So I put on a tennis outfit, and I went to near north in the evening, and I literally had a group of really cool people who were coming, and they were my age. We're not talking about different generations. They were pure. And I had a cool group of people walking down the street, and they were trying to be a little discreet, but I saw them point and laugh at what I was wearing. That's only one I could tell you. Julie could tell you something to make your hair curl. I mean, we live poor. But here's the truth. And I'm telling you this truth because I'm telling you that God has done it with me now several times. Back everything that you lost, but you're going to have to give me back everything that you learned. Can I tell you when you're really poor, that's tempting. Can I tell you it never tempted me at all? And because I'm such a great guy, I'm not. But because it would be such a lousy trade. I may be stupid, but I'm not that stupid. The things that I gained from the things that God did for the 20 years included, they're worth so much more than anything I could have ever had in the world.
we're rust and moth steel. I wish I'd have done it the way Dave did it. I lifted up Dave as the real story because Dave did it perfectly in my mind. But I still did too. I just did it in a more interesting way. But the fact of the matter is I can stand here and tell you, and you know that I'm telling you the truth. I can stand here and tell you that when you give God everything, what you give back is so much more. It just doesn't even begin to compare. It's just so much better. And it's, it's not like I gave him a lot of money and so he gives me back enough to live on. I've already told you he didn't do that with me. But he gave me something that I live on and that I'm pouring back out to you right now. He gave me the real food, the stuff that doesn't go away and get hungry again. He gave me the stuff that sticks to your ribs, the stuff that changes a human being, the stuff that makes you worth something to people that you love. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. <laughs> right? God's been trying to tell us today, you can trust him. That scripture that I just passed over was the one that said, don't be like the people that have a form of godliness but have denied its power. Be the kind of people that live in the power of God the fullness of God and reap the joy, reap the love, reap the glory, reap the presence of God that makes all that stuff just seem like dust. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, speak to the nation today, speak to our hearts. God, fill us to overflowing with who you are. God, we want to know who you are so that we can begin actually trusting you. For real, trusting you. The kind of trust that even goes to where it hurts and yet we still trust. God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, would you fill us with the joy that I have right now. The river of living water that is just bubbling up inside of me and just pouring out. Would you let us have that word from you that says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Oh God, would you please don't deny us the best, even in our failures. We come to you and we say, God, give us your best, even at the cost of the tower. In Jesus' holy and precious, magnificent, glorious, surpassing name, God, let every person in here know the depths of what it is you're trying to say right now. And let them live in the wonder of it, in the joy of it, in the abundance of it. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we take this cup the two cups in them both.